Just a heads up for listeners, this episode contains references to gun violence and mass shootings and may not be suitable for all listeners. Hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. It's a new year, and with it comes a new Congress. Republicans now control the House of Representatives, and there's been a lot of drama this week around electing the Speaker of the House for the 118th Congress. We'll get to that later. But first, I want to narrow in on one member who represents a new generation rising to power. Meet Representative Maxwell Frost. You want to know something funny? The first Gen Zer elected to Congress. I always put my phone on Do Not Disturb during these interviews. And I received the text. This isn't the flex. I just think it's funny. (laughs) Okay. Hi, sir. The vice president is about to call you. Just a heads up. And then I missed a a no caller ID. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you just text. I'm sure you can just text her. I'm sure it's it's fine. Yeah. I I was with Brittany. All right. Calm down. Frost is 25 years old and was just elected to represent Florida's 10th congressional district, which includes parts of Orlando. Let me put this a different way. The past midterm election was the first time a member of Gen Z could be elected to Congress. And Maxwell Frost is the first. And through him, we can begin to see how a new generation will govern, what issues they'll put on the floor, and how their voice will alter legislation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Frost is just getting to Capitol Hill and still wrapping his mind around the power and celebrity that comes with being a member of the most powerful legislative body in America. I joke around that there were two moments where it finally hit me that I'm going to Congress. The first one Mm. was when I first went on the House floor, but almost more than that, I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but it's my (laughs) personal story. Almost more than that was standing at the Anthem, the venue in D.C. with some of my best friends and oh, people wow. I love. And then hearing, you know, my favorite band since like 2013, like when I was in high school, shout me out. That band is the 1975. There's a young, a genuine young man here. 25-year-old man. Called Maxwell Frost. For like, you know, it wasn't like a, yeah, Maxwell Frost. It was like a three minute, four minute thing. And then they dedicated, you know, a great song. Love it if we made it to me. This song is dedicated to you. I was like crying and jumping and having a good time. I want to I want to go back for a second to the song, uh, the 1975 dedicated to you. Love it if we made it. It's it's frankly one of the most Gen Z political songs that I've heard, referencing everything from Lil Peep and opioids. You know, he's someone who died of a drug overdose. Yeah. To police violence and Donald Trump. Thematically, it makes sense that they would dedicate that song to you. What do you think about that? You know, something that I like to talk about when people ask me about Gen Z, you know, is I don't see myself as this representative or like the Gen Zer. I think like, you know, it's a generation, right? Gen Z leaders and 
that are teachers, clergy, uh, artists, we're all representative of our generation. So when I talk about the generation, I just like to talk about the timeline because that's something we all share no matter what your ideology is or what you believe. And if you think about the timeline of Gen Z, there's so much trauma that binds us together. A lot of times I'll do this exercise where I'm with a bunch of people or I'll ask folks of different generations for moments that are defining for their generation. Mm -hmm. For a lot of folks, you'll hear the moon landing. For other folks, you'll hear post 9-11 when the country really came together. I was like three when 9-11 happened, right? And so that right. that like post, you know, our country coming together despite your differences, I don't remember that. It wasn't a significant part of my life. Not because it's not significant, to be no, clear. No, because you but were like because, learning to count. Cause, right? Yeah, because I was in nap time. And so <laughs> for me, when I think about the things in my generation that are like pivotal moments, I think about the lynching of a black man in broad daylight, George Floyd, and seeing that on Twitter. Mm. I think about Parkland, Pulse, where 49 Angels were murdered right here because they're queer. Breonna Taylor. I think about Little Peep. You know, I think about all these, all this trauma and death that our generation has really lived in and marinated in. And mm -hmm. so that song is really like, you know, if you want to know the timeline of Gen Z, watch the music video and you're going to see images and really a crying out of the trauma and civil unrest our generation has really lived in. So now we're growing up and we're like, we know things are messed up. We're like a little confused on why. And uh, we want to be a part of the solution. You know, your your own journey to Congress reminds me of another song by the 1975. And in this in this same vein of what you've been saying about trauma, the song is called I Like America and America Likes Me. I'm scared of dying. It's a song about young people in America growing up with school shootings, which is close to your heart as someone who organized for March for Our Lives after the Parkland, Florida school shooting. Yep. What made you want to get involved? You know, I got involved a decade ago when I was 15 years old, and I got involved because of the Sandy Hook shooting. I went to an arts high school, middle school. I'm a complete band nerd. And uh, before every show, you would load up on junk food. And um, I remember we're there loading up on junk food, and there was a silence that fell across the entire restaurant we were in. And we kind of looked around and finally looked up and saw that somebody walked into an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, murdered 20 children and six teachers. And it, it had a huge impact on me. I mean, I was, I was <laughs> the lyrics of that song, you know, I'm scared of dying. Like literally I was like scared of being shot and getting shot in school. I went to the vigil in DC by myself. I just mm. went over there. I think I hit up some of the families on Facebook and was like, I, I just feel like I have to be there. The night of the vigil, I was sitting around this pool with all these kids and like young people from Sandy Hook. And I was sitting across from Matthew Soto, his sister, Vicky, was a teacher at Sandy Hook who was killed. And at hearing his story, seeing like he was 16, a 16-year-old with the demeanor of a 60-year-old crying mm. over his sister, talking about his sister who was murdered for just literally going to school, it changed my life. And I, I went straight like to my hotel room that night and dedicated the rest of my life to fighting for a world where people, you know, don't don't have that type of pain. I saw in Matthew's eyes. You know, this is also personal for you because you yourself survived a shooting at a Halloween event. What happened? 
Yeah, well, you know, and it's interesting because for so long, I did not count myself as a survivor of gun violence. Hmm. I had a caricature of what a survivor was, and it was people who survived the mass shooting. And um, for me, I did I did not survive a mass shooting. I was I was downtown Orlando on Halloween. Mm-hmm. All the streets get shut down. I'm just hanging out. I remember I dressed as Chance the Rapper. I remember like exactly what I was dressed as. Two guys right around us started getting an argument, and I saw the other guy pull out a gun and just start shooting. And I just remember the hundreds of people in the street bolting and running towards the nearest safest place that you could find. I remember one of my friends freezing up and like falling on the floor. And my friend and I had to grab her and run with her. And we just got in the car and we're just sitting there. And just that, you know, running away from gunfire, not knowing where it's going, not knowing what's going on. You know, everyone there that night survived gun violence. And Mm -hmm. I think there's so many survivors in this country and they don't really count themselves as survivors either because gun violence is so normalized or because right. we, again, have a caricature of what gun violence is. And mass shootings are horrible. And there's also so many other different types of gun violence as well. So the word survivor is important because to survive something means that you were close to death. And understanding that the gun problem in this country has put so many of us so close to death or for many folks has brought folks to death. It's important, I think, in in knowing how severe the problem is. What's significant here is that Gen Z and their lived experience will now be represented in Congress. But how does a 25-year-old get members of Congress who are his parents' and grandparents' age to listen to him? Something I think we can all relate to. We'll be right back. You're now the first Gen Zer elected to Congress. And regardless of whether or not you bristle <laughs> at that exact title, um, you know, it's still absolutely true. Yeah. And and like, and to be clear, like I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, Gen Z's been old enough to run forever and we finally made it. We're just got old enough to run for Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an elder Gen Z. And the fact that at first opportunity, our generation mm-hmm. has made it to the United States Congress, I think shows that Gen Z, we ain't taking any BS. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we we want to be at the table. We want to be helping to make these decisions. We don't want all of this responsibility on ourselves. But I also want folks to know that it shouldn't be up to the young people to save us, right? Because mm. we're, we're up against, you know, a lot of systemic oppression and problems and institutional problems in this country. We need a multi-generational, multi-racial movement that works together. And and that's what true movement's all about. The average age of the 117th Congress was 58. Yep. You are 25. Have you felt genuine respect from other members of Congress? Like, do they, do they treat you like an equal in the room? Yeah. I mean, so far, I've received nothing but respect from folks in my caucus and even some Republicans I've met. You know, I mean, I've received nothing but respect from them. Now, you know, the people who have disrespected me, it's been mostly online or the lieutenant governor of Florida, the lieutenant governor of my state went on Mm -hmm. some show the other day and and made fun of me because, you know, I'm having a hard time finding a place to live in D.C. So, I mean, there's people Mm -hmm. like that. Um, but, you know, as far as being in the halls of Congress, I've received nothing but respect from my caucus. And actually, you know, I, I just got elected to be one of the vice chair at larges of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. I was elected to 
be on the executive board of the Hispanic Caucus's campaign arm Bold Pack. And those are my colleagues who, you know, who have entrusted me with their vote on on being in a leadership position. I feel highly respected and highly supported. Now, I'll also say it's my <laughs> second day out here, right? So, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I will say, share a quick funny story. Uh-huh. There's a few times where I would enter one of the house buildings, and you know, members, you don't have to go through security. Um, which was surprising to me. But either way, you can just go straight in. You just have to show your badge. So I have a badge and I'm walking through the member line. And then a security guy runs over. He says, oh, this is for members only. Everyone else has to go over here. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a member elect. Here's my badge. He's like, let me see that. And I showed him. And then he smiled and he was like, how old are you? And I was like, 25. And he started jumping in the air and he called his other security guards over there and they were all jumping like, only in America. And he's black too. <laughs> they, were so ex- <laughs> they were so excited, you know? And so there's been times like that where I'm stopped, you know what I mean? But people, yeah. it's not, I, I feel like oftentimes we think about those stories and we're like, oh my God, he's getting stopped. Well, number one, when we're talking about like working class folks, like security guards or this and that doing their job, we do live in a country where I don't look like a member of Congress. So I don't mm. blame them for that inherent bias. Shouldn't be mad at people for, I don't know, being a part of this country where I, you know, I just don't look like that member of Congress. But, you know, that realization when people realize that I am incoming has been nothing but positivity. Hmm. You are, I think, wisely anticipating that there's likely to be some friction down the line. And oh yeah. With that in mind, I wonder how you plan to continue to advocate for these issues that you care about like gun violence and the climate crisis. Like those are issues that we've seen are of utmost importance to Gen Zers, but many politicians of the baby boomer generation and the silent generation, they don't always treat those issues with the same urgency. Yeah, no, 100% and like and to be clear, you know, when I face ageism in Congress, it's not going to be someone coming up to me and saying, you're young. You know what I mean? You don't belong here. It's, it's, yeah. It won't be overt like that. It's going to be implicit. It's going to be subconscious. It's going to be little comments. It's going to be things like that. And so, and you look, I'm used to it because I've always been the youngest person in the room in many of my jobs. Now, how do we get things done? Well, the thing I always keep in mind, we have to build coalitions and we have to understand that there's not, I, I'm not going at this alone on any of these issues. When we talk about the climate crisis, I am folding in to a movement of not just young people, but folks across this country, both older and younger, who have been fighting because they understand that the cost of not doing anything is far greater than the cost of taking bold action as it relates to the climate crisis. And so it's like that Maya Angelou quote, I come as one yet I stand as 10,000. And that's the way I see myself walking into these rooms. And that fortifies me both personally and my heart, right, you know, as an organizer to be in these rooms and be confident in what I'm saying, because it's not just Maxwell Frost speaking, it's the 10th congressional district that elected me here, there. Right. And it's the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people who believe in a world where everybody has the resources they need. And we collectively have to understand that we're not going to get that tomorrow, um, the North Star. But my commitment is to never stop talking about it and uh, to, to always be a champion that's vocal on it, because I do believe we can have these things very soon. We just have to organize. Every new Congress brings in new members who represent a different slice of the American experience. Democratic Representative Maxwell Frost is no exception. When we get back, the congressman talks about the struggle to find affordable housing in the nation's capital and how running for Congress broke his credit score. The literal cost of entering the halls of power 
after a quick break. You made a reference to the fact that you have had a hard time finding an apartment in D.C. To be more specific, you actually made headlines after you were elected when you were denied for an apartment in Washington, D.C. because of your poor credit history or low credit score. And there was a lot of discussion surrounding you after that about the high cost of housing and our reliance on credit scores to give or deny people access to housing. But what interested me about that moment was that it was reported that at least part of the reason for your poor credit history is that you maxed out credit cards to win your congressional seat. What does that tell us about the barrier to entry for representing our communities in Congress? You know, something that I've been talking about is the fact that I understand I come from a point of privilege that in two years time, I will be making a good salary for two years. I'm going to be able to pay off the debt that I have. But the whole point of me talking about that was number one, to talk about the crisis of housing that we have in this country right now. Mm -hmm. But number two, we have to talk about the entryway to power, the seats of power. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is when that entryway acts as a filter and filters out poor and working class people who don't have enough capital to run a campaign, enough capital to even be seated or find a place to live once they win the campaign, it determines who makes it to the seat of power. And so no one should be surprised when Congress's net worth continues to rise up, up, and up, and up, because we have a system that essentially makes it damn near impossible for anybody else to make it to that seat of power. And it's important to keep that in mind. That's really the point here. It's not that in two years, Max was going to be okay. It's the fact that right now, as a working class organizer who had to Uber during the campaign to pay my bills and run up a ton of credit card debt because I didn't have an income really coming in, mm-hmm. how do we make it easier for working class people to run for these seats of power and to actually assume these seats so we have real representation? That's really the thing to talk about here. And you know, I have people too, like I said, the lieutenant governor of the state, one of the things she joked around about, she said he should sleep in his office like a lot of the other people. Well, number one, I think after a long day of working on Capitol Hill, I think all staff there should be able to go to a bed and sleep in a place that's outside of their workplace. Hmm. But, but, But number two, most of the people who sleep in their offices are actually tend to be Republican members. And so that that's Hmm. that's great to hear because if they're so pro free public housing, because that's what that is, free public housing, I'm excited (laughs) to work with them to make sure that our people have access to the same thing. (laughs) <laughs> you know, Congressman Frost, I, I I can think back to when I was 25. It wasn't that long ago. I'm 35. So I'm not like plumbing the depths of my memory. But I've changed so much since then. And I did not serve in Congress, in case you were wondering. You're just beginning on your new journey as a Congress person. How do you think Congress will change you? Well, you know, I mean, that's a question I ask myself and not on the premise of how will it change me, right? My right. my goal is to not be changed as far as my values and what I believe in. I think inherently, I think Congress is going to educate me on like, you know, as I continue through this on on the process, on, you know, how do we work with folks on compromising? How do we move forward? But the thing that I won't lose sight of are the values and the North Stars that I believe in and what got me here. 
I plan on having in my office a picture of my mugshot of when I was arrested for a nonviolent protest here in Central Florida during Black Lives Matter. It reminds me of where I came from and the work that I do. Representative Frost, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's given me a lot to think about, I'll say, with regard to how the world might change as younger generations start to be able to assume these kinds of positions. So thank you for taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That was Florida's Democratic Congressman Maxwell Frost. Now, normally Frost would have been sworn in as an official member of Congress on January 3rd. But that was put on hold because Republicans, who just regained control of the House of Representatives, struggled to elect a Speaker of the House. They've been through several rounds of voting, and while watching it, I couldn't help but think, man, Congress needs some New Year's resolutions to get it together. But since they're not going to do it for themselves, I brought in NPR's congressional correspondent, Susan Davis, to do it for them. Sue Davis, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Oh, it's great to be here. To start off, it's a new year new Congress. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. It has started more dramatic and more suspenseful than I was fully prepared (laughs) for. But in terms of news reporting, uh, it's very dynamic. And I think it does sort of set a tone for a Congress that could be pretty unpredictable and a little bit wild. So, you know, it's always good to feel like your synapses are firing at the start of a new year. (laughs) Synapses are firing, I think, for a lot of people right now. Just to start us off, As we all know, Congress has had a rocky, awkward, let's say bumpy start, um, with some historic drama. Obviously, I'm talking about this GOP Speaker of the House vote. For those who don't know, Representative Kevin McCarthy from California, who has been gunning for House Speaker for quite some time, Mm -hmm. lost several rounds of voting. This has been uncharted territory. So what does that lack of consensus say about the Republican Party right now? Well, I think at the heart of it, it's really just a math problem, right? I mean, Kevin McCarthy was predicting and hoping for a red wave so he could have a majority padded by enough allies that he wouldn't face this kind Mm. of problem. So not only is it preventing him from his own political ambitions, but even if we get – I mean, eventually I have to think there will be a Speaker of the House, even on the other end of this confrontation – I just think it forecasts that every tough thing Congress Mm. has to do this year – could be these sort of huge internal party battles. I think it's worth noting that 90% of the Republican conference is behind him, right? Like it's just, it shows the power of a really dug in fringe group of lawmakers if they want to cause chaos and they are loving the chaos and they don't seem to be worried at all that it could hurt their own political fortunes. If anything, I think a lot of their brands are chaos and this is good politics for them. You mentioned McCarthy's political ambitions. They're quite grand. Speaker of the House is definitely, you know, it's a it's a key position in, in the U.S. government. But like, I don't know, how many times can you run for prom queen and not get it? Like, yeah. doesn't that hurt the ego at this point? I mean, I think, you know, part of this is a bit of an ego exercise. Kevin McCarthy wanted to be speaker seven years ago. He ran in 2015 after John Boehner decided right. to step down in the middle of a conference. He had to step aside because he didn't have the support of conservatives. I mean, this is an echo of that mm. playing out again. And I think it's always nagged at him. You know, even prior to the vote, we we knew going in to the first vote that it could take multiple ballots, that he might not have it locked up. 
But I talked to a lot of his allies leading up to that saying, like, why take it to the floor if you don't have the votes? And people who like him, who are his friends, were like, he is dug in. He is he wants to take it to the floor. He wants the fight. He has wanted this his whole life. How do you walk away without at least putting up a fight? He has said this isn't about me. It's about the country. It's about America. But yeah, like part of this is about Kevin McCarthy. Part of this is about his political ambitions. A lot of this is just personal. Some of these members, you know, they just don't like him. He's offered every concession, almost every concession they've asked for, and he hasn't moved a single no vote to the yes column yet. And to me, that says it's it's more about just policy. It's about personal animus. It's about trust. And people just want anybody who's not Kevin. Mm. Okay. So the drama around the Speaker of the House aside, Republicans now control the House, a slimmer margin than they hoped for in the midterms, but they control it nonetheless. What do you think Republicans in the House's New Year's resolution should be? What do they need to do to be their best selves in 2023? I think what they need to do as a governing party is be a check on Joe Biden's power in a way that produces an alternative to the country, right? Like they're in the majority, but they don't control Washington. So it's not really about advancing a legislative agenda. A lot of this is setting the stage for 2024. They want to use this power to, I think, both weaken Joe Biden by launching lots of investigations into his family and to how his administration has handled things like the border or the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And they also want to put forward policies on immigration or other issues that's important to their party and to their base that they think could help them win in 2024. They're not doing that right now. You know, like the, mm. the first the first impression to the country of Republican control is a bit of chaos. Now, how damaging is it? I don't know. The resolution should be, look, we're a responsible governing party who has better ideas than Joe Biden. And they're not able to do that if they can't even get past their own internal turmoil, right? Like, it's not even about Democrats mm. right now. It's about Republican on Republican violence. And <laughs> they got to be able to change that narrative. <laughs> okay, so I am going to throw out a prediction here. I think that in 2023, it's going to be a year of a lot of people resolving to throw in their hat for president. Former President Trump sure. already has. I think Republicans should resolve to decide... What their party is, Trump's or someone else's, do you think that they can? I think the voters get to decide that, right? Uh, that's not really uh, up to Donald Trump even, but I think that that's why you start to see so much interest and hunger around uh, someone who could keep the Trump voter engaged but not be Trump. And obviously, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is probably the Republican at the top of that list mm. for a lot of uh, Trump-allied Republicans. But, you know, Trump is still a dominant force, but he's hobbled. You look even at the speaker fight. He came out again this week and said, I endorse Kevin. Everyone should vote for McCarthy. He's, he could be a good, maybe a great speaker. Didn't move a single vote. And and a lot of that anti-McCarthy faction are people who really strongly align with the former president. So his political capital is at a weak point, but the process still bends towards Trump, right? Like there is mm. a way we elect presidents through delegates and early states. And that process would favor, I would, he's not the incumbent, but he would be like an incumbent in a primary fight. And that's going to be really hard for anybody to try to do. Mm. Okay, let's talk Democrats. You know, they lost the majority in the House, but have maintained control of the Senate. Since they don't get to set the agenda in the House anymore, what should Democrats in the House, what should their New Year's resolution be? Just be normal. 
I think one of the lessons of 2022 was that there is a critical chunk of voters who are tired of drama. And I think you see this again playing out in the speaker's fight is the best thing Democrats can do is let their political opponents be their own worst enemies. Being seen as competent and not doing anything crazy in politics is actually quite appealing to that small slither of voters who decide a lot of these tough elections in swing states. Uh, Kevin McCarthy-led House is one of the easiest things to keep House Democrats unified because on the agenda, they don't agree with almost any of the issues except maybe the big stuff like don't shut down the government or you know don't default on the national debt. But it's pretty easy to have a common enemy for them right now, and that's the most unifying thing in politics. Hmm. You know, Democrats have already resolved to shift power in their own party. Nancy Pelosi stepped down as Speaker of the House. And Democrats elected Hakeem Jeffries from New York to be their minority leader. And he's made history as the first Black lawmaker to lead either party in Congress. What do you think his ascension means for the House? And more broadly, the Democratic Party's trajectory at large? It's a great question. You know, I have covered Congress on and off since 2002, but I have never covered a Congress in which Nancy Pelosi was not leading the Democrats. So I don't know what a non-Pelosi-led House looks like. That's going to be one of the fun storylines to cover for Democrats. They really Mm -hmm. did this, like, torch passing, not just from the sort of Pelosi era, but also generationally. Like, Pelosi left, Steny Hoyer of Maryland and James Clyburn of South Carolina all sort of relinquished their roles. And the Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, Pete Aguilar of California, Trifecta, they're a generation younger, right? Mm. Like, they're, it's, it's it's more diverse, it's younger, and they have a different view of what the Democratic Party is, what Mm. it should look like. How would you sum up that vision? A lot of it, I think, is representation. It matters a lot to Democrats that every table is filled with a diverse set of viewpoints. And they do really try to do that. I think it matters a lot when it comes to powerful committee roles, who gets to go on TV, and even what the leadership team looks like, right? It's women, it's progressives, it's Latinos, it's Black people. And I think that Keeping that diversity at the front of the Democratic Party, partly it's optics, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it looks good for them. But I do think the House Democratic Caucus in this Congress is the most diverse group of Americans in one party faction ever. They are a majority women minority party now, Mm -hmm. and that is important to them. And I think that they like to showcase that every opportunity that they have is to be like, we're the party that looks like America. Hmm. So to go back to our overall theme of New Year's resolutions, another hallmark of resolutions is to reflect on our relationships. Mm. And with that in mind, the White House's relationship to Congress shifts with this new majority in the House. What advice would you give to President Biden to build relationships in this new Congress? I think Biden was doing it this week. I mean, the the contrast of the House being in sort of chaos right now against the backdrop of Joe Biden traveling to Kentucky to stand next to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and, you know, together point to how government's working for you because they passed this infrastructure bill. And that is the kind of stuff that people like, right? Like, that's just good politics. I think that People, as much as we talk about polarization, there is an effect that it has on people when they see political opponents working together that I think is good for the president, right? It might not always be good politics for Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, but for Joe Biden, 
the progressive left might not like seeing him hanging out with Mitch McConnell, but if he wants to run and win re-election, being seen as a reasonable guy mm. who's willing to work with even his most ardent political opponents to advance things is smart. Hmm. Well, some very interesting resolutions discussed and also some great predictions from you. I am curious to see how everything turns out with this 118th Congress whenever it gets started. <laughs> yeah, it could be. And it could be, you know, it could be a while. Uh, fortunately, they don't really need to do anything for a couple months. So I'm not saying this is going to go on for a couple months, but uh, I think the longest the House ever went without a speaker was for a couple months during the Civil War. Uh, and it took over 100 ballots to resolve it. So hopefully we're not there yet. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't make we'll any predictions. Sue, thank you so much for joining us today on It's Been a Minute. This is great. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be here. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McVeigh, Corey Antonio Rose. It was produced and edited by Jessica Mendoza. It was edited by Jessica Plachek. Engineering support came from Robert Rodriguez and Maggie Luther. We had fact-checking help from Cecil Davis Vasquez, Sarah Knight, Bryn Winterbottom, and Barkley Walsh. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Brittany Luce. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. 